This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the Senate Republicans are still trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. At this hour, we'll have an update on today's skinny efforts from Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Plus, the rise and fall of good jobs in America. Rick Wartzman will explain what went wrong. First up, we're going to talk about Don Jr., Jared, and the rest of the clan. Trump Watch starts right now. First up today, the Children's Hour. Stories about Don Jr., Jared, Ivanka, and little Eric. Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. For that, we turn to our Trump Kids correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and an award-winning author of many books, especially on Haiti. The most recent is Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, Jared is the number one Trump kid in trouble this week. Monday, he testified in secret before the House Intel Committee. That was after we learned that during the campaign, he had attended that Trump Tower meeting with the Russian attorney promising dirt on Hillary from the Russian government. After he came out of testifying for two hours, uh, he read a statement to the media. Let's listen. The record and documents I have voluntarily provided will show that all of my actions were proper and occurred in the normal course of events of a very unique campaign. Let me be very clear. I did not collude with Russia, nor do I know of anyone else in the campaign who did so. I had no improper contacts, and I have been fully transparent in providing all requested information. Donald Trump had a better message and ran a smarter campaign, and that is why he won. Suggesting otherwise ridicules those who voted for him. It is an honor to work with President Trump and his administration as we take on the challenges that he was elected to face. Creating jobs for American people, keeping America safe, of course, there's a little bit more, but uh, that was only the second time that Jared Kushner has spoken in public since the campaigns began more than a year ago. Ivanka talks in public all the time. So do with Don Jr. and Eric. Amy, what uh, what do you think of Jared's second speech to the public? Well, he's a very stiff public speaker. He doesn't speak in public. He reads. He doesn't read very well. For instance, he left out the fact that he had been voluntarily... Uh, uh, transparent until he realized he left out the word and went back to say it because actually it's not true. One of the things about reading uh, in public is that you often uh, make Freudian slips like that, I know, because I read in public. (laughs) And it's usually the key word that you've left out, and that's the one he left out. Uh, Yeah, he sounds sort of like a fourth grader reading a book report up there. Obviously, this was drafted by his lawyers at... um, uh, the really interesting part is he also released the uh, a written statement before he went in uh, explaining his attendance at that meeting with the Russian promising dirt on Hillary. Uh, what he said in that statement was that uh, 
He didn't know the subject of the meeting. He didn't know who the meeting was with. He's been over, he was overwhelmed at the times by email. He couldn't read every email, especially long ones. What do you make of that um, reasoning? Well, let's put it this way. The subject line for the email was Russia Clinton, private and confidential. I don't know about you, John. (laughs) That would get my interest up, even in the midst of 200 emails. It's not that weird for someone in his position, by the way, to get 200 emails a day. He has to do triage. This is his job, and he did. You can be sure he read that email. So, uh, If he didn't read the email, by the way, he's truly incompetent. Interesting point. Yeah, this was sent by his brother-in-law, and uh, He says, well, I went to all the meetings that my brother-in-law scheduled. There's nothing unusual about this. And then he also had this thing about he, he, the meeting was so uh, uneventful that he left early. What was his story about that? The story is that both he and and Paul Manafort left this meeting very quickly. Uh, He said that he, from the meeting, he texted his assistant and he said, he wrote, can you please call me on my cell? Need excuse to get out of meeting. So we don't know if there's a record of that, although um, he seems to quote it quite explicitly. So perhaps he has a record of that text. Uh, it's just like, so what? He went to the meeting. He was there. He heard what had to be said. In fact, you know, I, I have no idea what happened at that meeting, but you can do a lot in 10 minutes if if there's something on the table. And of course, even if it turned out that the Russia the what was promised to be dirt on Hillary from the Russian government wasn't going to be delivered at this meeting, uh, it, his intent is everything uh, in a case exactly. of obstruction of justice or perjury. He's hoping to get uh, a thing of value from the Russian government, essentially. Russia, Clinton personal and confidential. And we know the substance of the email also. It was quite explicit about what was on offer. Uh, He says he never read the email. The reason he says he never read the email is because that would then show there was intent to gather the thing of value from the Russian government. Yes, yes, yes. You Seems like you must have gone to law school. To be <laughs> Almost. <able> to <laughs> <laughs> I dodged that bullet. <laughs> the Washington Post headline about this argument that he made about how he didn't read the email and he didn't know who the person was and he left early. The Washington Post headline was, Jared just threw Don Jr. under the bus. What does that mean? What that means is that he is leaving his brother-in-law out to dangle there because clearly Don can't say he didn't read the email. He sent the email. Um, He forwarded emails. He sent the email. He solicited his brother-in-law's attendance. He solicited Paul Manafort's attendance at this very unimportant meeting when they were very, very busy. And uh, Jared is saying, well, I didn't know. You know, I just went because Don said. So that's, that's why the Washington Post said throwing him under the bus. But In a sense, even though Don is the president's son, he's somewhat expendable because Don is not the president's employee. He is not the taxpayer's employee. He's not under oath to protect and defend the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. 
So he's throwable under a bus. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that. Jared has legal obligations to report all contacts with foreign uh, people uh, as condition of his security clearance. And if he doesn't, he is guilty of a felony. Uh, Don Jr. doesn't face any of these no. problems. He's just a private citizen. He he can lie as long as he's not under oath in court. It doesn't really matter uh, what he says, although we expect truth from uh, the son of the president. Jared is has legal exposure, and obviously that's why his lawyers drafted this statement. Right. So and more careful. careful. Well, that's the Jared. The well, week, I the just week want to say one other thing one about other Jared. Thing. In his statement, he also said like. My meeting with the Russian ambassador was so unimportant to me that I couldn't even remember the Russian ambassador's name. And this kind of made me laugh because, first of all, it doesn't matter if you can remember his name. You remember you had the meeting. Go find out his name and put it on your security clearance form. But second of all, um, no one can remember Russians' names, let's be honest. And Kislyak is pretty easy compared to Veselnitskaya. So, I mean, you got to think. The guy has to practice up on his Russian name. We're giving you a gold star for that. Or maybe in the old days, we would have given you a red star. I am working hard on my Russian. You are. And my Chinese. Why am I working hard on my Chinese? Well, that's... So we've finished with Jared here. Jared's troubles this week. Uh, Ivanka... Jared's wife was also in the news just for a cameo appearance. Um, Remember, there was that New York Times, uh, three New York Times reporters interviewed the president in the Oval Office. That's where he first began this campaign uh, against Jeff Sessions. Uh, And Ivanka uh, made a cameo appearance, which is in the transcript of the meeting. Tell us about Ivanka in the news. Well, uh, What happened was the reporters are sitting around and they're talking to the president about Comey and how he came to fire Comey. And uh, I have actually I have a transcript here. Can I read from it, John? Please. Um, So the New York Times says, did you actually have a one on one with Comey then? And Trump goes, not much. Not even that I remember. He was sitting and I don't I don't remember even talking to him about that stuff. Okay, but people didn't. We had a couple of people that said, Hi, baby. How are you? This is when Arabella Kushner walks into the room. Arabella is how old? She's six years old, and she's Ivanka's and Jared's very, very adorable daughter. So she comes in the room. She says, hi, Grandpa. (laughs) And Trump goes, he doesn't say hi to her. He goes, my granddaughter, Arabella, who speaks, say hello to them in Chinese. (laughs) Arabella, ni hao. (laughs) Trump goes, oh, and this is Ivanka. You know Ivanka. Ivanka says, hi, how are you, from the doorway. She says, see you later. Just wanted to come say hi. John, do you think this was organized beforehand? <laughs> so spontaneous. Anyway, so spontaneous. at the very end of, of Arabella's appearance, uh, Trump says, she spoke with President Xi. Honey, can you say a few words in Chinese? Say like, this just happens to leap to Trump's mind. Say like, I love you, Grandpa. <laughs> and Arabella says, well, I nay, Grandpa. <laughs> She's unbelievable, huh? That's what Trump says. <laughs> That's what he said about so many women. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have this completely impromptu. Arabella just stops by the Oval Office where Trump is giving for the first time an Oval Office interview to the New York Times. Goes into the transcript. I guess who gets the credit for this, Ivanka or is, I don't know. 
I don't know, not Sean Spicer, even well, though he was still well, in charge of communications. Uh, so that's Ivanka in the news. There also was some news that came out in the what's the the late Friday evening news dump to make sure it's ignored as much as possible by uh, by the news media. Since Saturday is the slowest news day, the previously unreported assets inadvertently omitted by Jared and Ivanka from their personal financial disclosure form, uh, 70 assets were inadvertently omitted worth at least $10.6 million and perhaps as much as $51 million. Uh, Ivanka's assets, uh, she reported assets of at least $66 million and said that she earned at least $13.5 million in income last year from her business ventures. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, these are just the kind of people that you expect to represent the little man, the real American <laughs> in life, you know. Um, but beyond that, so these are rich people. That's who Jared and, and Ivanka really are. Ivanka's just hired, you know, a personal stylist from Hollywood, one of the fanciest people around who does that kind of work. These these aren't uh, regular guys. And, uh, and, and they're dilettantes at what they're doing now. What they're doing now is kind of their hobby. It's their fun, interesting moment, four years, maybe eight years, people. Uh, and... They're having a ball, sort of, although it's getting a little scary for them, and they're concerned, I'm sure, about this wrecking the rest of their rich people's life. So uh, it's just, it's important to remember the cushion that exists out there for them once they're finished doing whatever it is they're doing to the United States of America. Well, Jared's uh, life, and and as a result, Ivanka's life, are right now have to be focused on his legal jeopardy uh, with the um, the FBI investigation by the and the special counsel's investigation and the House and Senate Intel Committee investigations. Once you are under investigation, you are spending tens of millions on lawyers. It's like you, being audited by the IRS a hundred times. A hundred times, you, you every word that you say has to be checked by your lawyers. Everybody knows this except Donald Trump, but it really takes over your life, and this is going to go on for many months, maybe years. So I don't think their lives are that happy right now. Right, I think they're feeling a little bit cornered right now and you see that reflected not so much in what they say but in what the president how the president is talking the way his tweets are now really appealing to the base he's kind of like uh, the typical cornered animal he himself and is trying to divert attention from what's happening to his kids public attention uh, and uh, you know the whole attack on Jeff Sessions little did I think I would ever be here saying anything <laughs> on behalf of Jeff, Jeff Sessions but the whole attack on Jeff Sessions is a preliminary step in the chess game to get rid of Mueller. So, and Which, that's all about protecting the children too. But excellent point. This is also protecting the children. We've only got I don't know three or four minutes left here. We have not yet talked about Don Jr. or Eric. Um, Eric was on Fox this week. Um, Don Jr., of course, has some big problems explaining things. And I think Don Jr. was on Fox this week, too. They both portray themselves as, you know, persecuted victims of the liberal media who won't leave them alone, won't leave their family uh, alone. It's interesting that they're the ones who get sent to be on Fox. 
again, Jared must be protected. He can't be sent to be on Fox. Of course, we've seen that uh, he's not related to the Trumps, Jared Kushner. He doesn't have the ease of public presentation, yeah. the comfort with uh, give and take. Uh, now, the Trumps don't have that much ease if they're challenged. But when it is a kind of uh, friendly interview, they're perfectly good at it. Jared is just no good at it, first of all. And second of all, he has a lot more at stake in this game. So he's not going to go on and, and have that conversation, even on a friendly station. Yeah, you have to wonder how much good it really does the Trump cause to have uh, Eric and Don Jr. complaining that they've been uh, persecuted by the liberal media. I, it only does them good with people who already believe yeah. them. It doesn't do them good anywhere else. I mean, they don't really have much to say about what it was that they did, except that it's all uh, lies from the Hillary camp and yeah, it's a vast progressive conspiracy. Uh, the other thing that we haven't talked, you know, you did bring up uh, Jeff Sessions and how the future of Z Jeff Sessions is uh, relevant to the future of certainly uh, of Jared um, as well as the president. It's interesting to me that so many big shot Republicans are defending Jeff Sessions, which means exposing Trump and Trump's son-in-law to this continuing and apparently serious legal jeopardy. What do you make of this? I just think that Trump doesn't have that much going for him right now. I think that um, he has the family loyalty. He has a bunch of staffers who are all furious at each other. And then he has what is really, it seems to be, a kind of unified Senate Republican majority, but it's not really. There's a, there's a big division there, and he risks alienating uh, his conservative supporters, not his alt-right supporters, but his really strictly conservative supporters by going after Jeff Sessions. And of course, he risks never being able to hire another person in the, to the Washington staff because of destroying his attorney general. Well, uh, he did hire the Mooch, his new uh, <laughs> his new communications director. Apparently, uh, Jared and Ivanka still play an important role in personnel decisions, and they support uh, the Mooch. Uh, what do we know about the Mooch, and why would Jared and Ivanka be uh, on this Mooch's side in all of this? The Mooch has always been a fan of Trump since he realized that there was the possibility of getting a job from Trump. In the old days, he wasn't that big a fan of Trump's. But now he praises him. He praises the president's brilliance in the athletic forum. He praises <laughs> oh, the president's intelligence, his accomplishments in office thus far, which what they are, I do not know. Um, and of course, his charm. This is what the Trumps like. They like flattery and loyalty and omerta. And that's what they're going to get from, from Scaramucci, I think. That's what they want, and that's what they're going to get. Amy Willens reporting on Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Amy, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. Next up, Rick Wartzman explains the rise and fall of good jobs in America. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
Tom Nixon here, host of Roots Music and Beyond, the first Saturday of each month from 6 to 8 a.m. Join me on Planet Nixon for music from every area and era when I'll make the familiar sound unfamiliar and vice versa. Subsequent weeks each month feature Rick Freistack, Art Pudel, Jim Moran, Mark Humphrey, and John and Deanne Davis. That's Roots Music and Beyond, Saturday mornings from 6 to 8 here at KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Same old story. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. with Trump Watch on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Republicans in the Senate are still trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. Harold Harold Meyerson will have the report of the latest on the skinny effort to replace Obamacare. But first, the rise and fall of good jobs in America. For that, we turn to Rick Wartzman. He's written several books. My favorite is The King of California, J.G. Boswell, and the Making of a Secret American Empire, which we talked about here a couple of years ago. Uh, Rick was an editor at the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times. He writes now about the future of work for Fortune Online, and he's a senior advisor at the Drucker Institute. His new book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Rick Wartzman, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, Donald Trump, in his victory speech on election night, said, quote, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. And just a couple of nights ago, he was in Youngstown, Ohio, the heart of the Rust Belt. He promised to refill lost manufacturing jobs in factories there, or, quote, rip them down and build brand new ones. That's what's going to happen, Trump said. Mm. (laughs) This was a campaign rally in a hockey arena that holds 7,000 people. What, uh, just off the top of your head, what what is Trump's plan to uh, bring back the good manufacturing (laughs) jobs or else brand new ones? Well, I think as with many things uh, we're seeing with this president, the marketing is there uh, more than uh, the actual plan uh, to do a whole lot. Look, he, he's jaw, jawboning some companies into maybe doing some things that they wouldn't have, although most of them that have announced plans to uh, create more manufacturing jobs in the U.S., these were plans already well underway. Uh, he's, of course, claiming credit for them. Um, and he you know, is probably trying to do some things, work with some states. Uh, we just see uh, in Wisconsin now this Foxconn uh, announcement today. What is the Foxconn announcement uh, today? So that they're uh, going to build a, uh, a – fl- Let's just say Foxconn is the Chinese company that manufactures the, the iPhone. iPhone. That is correct. Yep. And uh, they're now going to build a plant in the U.S. They say that will ultimately create up to 13,000 jobs. Um, but it's incredible. The state tax breaks that they're getting uh, amount into several billions of dollars. And the Washington Post calculated it at uh, amounting to something like $231,000 per worker in tax breaks. Wow. They'd be better off just handing everybody $231,000, <laughs> don't you think? I, I see what you mean. 
uh, in where in Wisconsin is this going to be? Uh, I actually can't. Is it Paul Ryan's district? It is Paul Ryan's district, <laughs> a, yes. Yes, that is, that is for sure. Well, that yes. used to have a big GM plant, which is one of the yes. thing, one of the, the subjects of your book, The End of Loyalty. Yep. Your book is about how we got those good manufacturing jobs and how we lost them. Uh, let's start with the happy story of American corporations in the late 19. 19- 20s and where the good jobs came from what what uh what did you learn what can you tell us about what was a good job in America sure so my book does go back to the 20s and in some cases in the case of Eastman Kodak one of four companies that I focus on along with General Motors as you alluded to General Electric and Coca-Cola these four iconic companies that I tell this larger story through that lens I do go back in time. The The story really begins for me uh, after after um, uh, World War II, the end of World War II, and uh, the creation really of the great American middle class. You had all these returning servicemen, mostly men, coming home from war. Uh, it was the baby boom. Uh, of course, America, we had pretty much bombed our global competition to its knees. Big American corporations could afford to be very generous. And, and it was a time that they did uh, give a lot to the American worker in terms of uh, wages that were rising steadily through this period from the late 40s all the way to the early 70s, tremendous amounts of other compensation in the form of pensions, good pensions, guaranteed pensions, uh, uh, guaranteed benefit, defined benefit plans, uh, and rising health care benefits for employees. So all of this happened over this kind of 30-year golden age. One really important caveat to all of it is, of course, and I, and I make this very clear in the book, this was a golden age, particularly if you were white and male. Um, this wasn't really a golden age for women, for people of color, and uh, there were still lots of problems through the system. The reason I mentioned the 20s is that it was in the 20s that the ideas first arose about corporations competing for employees by yes. offering them excellent benefit That's packages right. as well as high wages. Yeah, absolutely. So some companies engaged in exactly what you're talking about in a, in a practice that scholars call welfare capitalism. Yes. You put these two words together, it sounds like an oxymoron almost uh, today. But uh, And there was a mix of impulses that drove companies to do this through the 20s and in this post-war golden age as well. So in some cases, like with Kodak, uh, they were a welfare capitalism practicing company uh, because they wanted to keep union organizers at bay. And the idea was that if you lavished enough pay and perks on your folks, they wouldn't turn to outsiders to try and win those things for them. And in Kodak's case, it worked. They were very generous and Kodak was never organized by any union. Um, there were other impulses, though, driving these companies. So some, particularly after World War II, you had all tens of millions of returning servicemen. And there was a real fear that there might be bread lines in America again, uh, and that there could be a depression even worse than what had unfolded in the 1930s. And so uh, there was a, an idea that if that had happened, uh, you might end up with communism or socialism taking Uh-oh. root on America Uh-oh. soil. Well, yes. <laughs> so this was a little bit of self-preservation for capitalism. One other impulse, which is worth noting, I think, because um, it's something that has kind of risen to the fore again today, um, there was a real Keynesian idea that we've got to put enough 
dough in our workers' pockets so that they can spend and buy our products. Um, Charlie Wilson, who was the president of General Electric, said, how are they going to buy my refrigerators if we don't give them wages to do it with? What a great man. <laughs> what a, what a, well, and, and obviously Henry Ford had this idea right back in the teens with uh, making his workers' wages you know, spike from a dollar a day to $5 a day overnight. And lo and behold, they could afford to buy cars. They could afford to buy Fords. Um, there's concern, interestingly, from Larry Summers, uh, the former Treasury Secretary and others, that pay has been stagnant for so long now that it's creating this idea of secular stagnation, that there's just not enough aggregate consumer demand mm -hmm. to make the economy hum. Well, this very week, this very day, we are completely uh, absorbed with the future of healthcare in America. Yep. And it's not a major part of your book, but there's a little footnote here that turns out to be extremely important. The idea of employer-sponsored health insurance is yes. a uniquely American idea. You don't find this in England or Germany or France. No, that's right. They have national health plans. There is a reason why we don't have a national health plan. Absolutely. Corporations very explicitly wanted to keep the government out of the healthcare market. They wanted to, to be a benefit that could attract labor. And in fact, they began doing this uh, to a much larger degree during World War II when the War Labor Board, a federal agency, kept a lid on wages in order to hold down inflation. But they allowed companies to offer more generous benefits. And some did as a way to attract people, particularly with so uh, much of the workforce fighting abroad. They needed to attract people into the factories, into their offices. And so they offered health care. At the same time, early on, uh, and this would change as um, uh, sort of the old craft unions gave way to the mass industrial unions. But at the time of the AFL craft unions, they also didn't want the government in the healthcare business. Mm -hmm. They wanted it to be something that they would, in effect, win at the bargaining table. Yes. And yes. so they pushed government out. And the doctors never wanted any government interference. So the AMA has always been opposed. The upshot of that is really important. So the fight, and, and Harold's going to come on and talk about it, it's hugely important, right? We're talking tens of millions of people who could lose health coverage, particularly uh, if the expansion of Medicaid is taken away. This is really serious stuff. But the real story of healthcare in America, if you look at the numbers, right, there are probably 11, 12 million people who get their health insurance through the ACA exchanges directly, not talking about the Medicaid expansion. There are 150 million Americans who get their coverage, their health coverage through an employer, 150 million. And the story there is that health benefits, which rose in this post-war golden age, has been slowly bleeding to death for the last 30 or so years with more and more costs shunted onto the shoulders of workers and their families. And today, today the Republicans are, are proposing to eliminate the employer mandate, uh, sort of the, the uh, solution to the problem of the corporations that you write about not wanting to offer the kind of benefits they used to. Now we have under Obamacare, we mandated that employers above a certain size are Correct. required to offer this benefit, which the good employers uh, 50 years ago uh, were proud to offer. Yeah, and most still do. Look, most big employers still offer health coverage. But the numbers, depending on exactly what you look at, it's gone from you know, some, you know, 70% uh, of workers who uh, got their coverage through their employer, you know, that's down to around 50% or so. So it's been in steady decline. 
And as I say, there was a period where um, premiums were soaring for people, uh, for workers. So they were suddenly paying, uh, in, in many cases, particularly for single individuals, your employer would cover 100% of your premium. So in about a half of cases, uh, even in like the 1990s. Now that's down to a small fraction. Um, so all that's eroded and deductibles have also climbed. So a lot of out-of-pocket costs for people that they didn't have to bear uh, for many, many years. You mentioned keeping unions out is one of the motives for corporations that, that offered uh, impressive benefits packages. I want to talk a little bit more about the role of unions in this whole history. Mm -hmm. Kodak kept unions out. Of course, General Motors and General Electric famously fought big battles against unions, but the unions eventually organized those places. What, how, do you, how do you understand the role of the UAW in, the UAW in Flint, the UE in Lynn? Yep. So hugely important. And I spend a lot of time early in the book talking about these labor management struggles, exactly what you're talking about from the Flint sit-down strike in 1937 through epic battles at General Electric through the late 60s um, that uh, bit massive walkouts and strikes and so on. The reason this was so important is that when about 25 to say 35% of the American workforce were union members, they were organized. There clearly was a tremendous spillover effect through the rest of the economy. And so other workers, whether you carried a union card or not, you also saw your pay and benefits lifted in many cases because it was enough of a mass of workers that your employer needed to keep up in order to attract you. They couldn't afford mm -hmm. to fall too far behind. It even spilled over for white-collar workers. Many of their benefits, including things like introductions of cost-of-living adjustments in their contracts, were first hard won at the bargaining table by the UAW and other unions. And so this spillover effect is tremendous, was tremendous. Now you're at a point where less than 7% of the private sector labor force is organized. There is no spillover effect anymore. And so it's been one of, not the only, but one of the important reasons that there has been a decline in good jobs in America. So the corporations now put their stockholders and their profits ahead of their uh, their employers, their employees' yes. loyalty and well-being. And the uh, at least up to a couple of years ago, it seemed like the future of capitalism was Walmart, a low-wage mm -hmm. anti-union corporation that locked its employees in the buildings overnight. Uh, now it seems like the future is gone beyond Walmart to Uber, where <laughs> the employer doesn't even have employees. Right, that's right. No, they're <laughs> you know they're 1099 independent contractors. It's the fastest growing part of the labor force now, uh, depending on how you how you measure it. And if you and if you take gig workers, independent contractors, you add in temp workers, you add in uh, you know on call contract workers, and some others who who do so called contingent work. The best numbers suggest that's now at about 15% of the labor force, but it's the fastest growing part. Some will cite numbers up to 50% of the Whoa. labor force are fast approaching. Whoa. I think those are overblown. The, the 15, 16% comes from work done by Larry Katz at Harvard and Alan Kruger at Princeton. I, those are the best, it's the best data I've seen, but it's still significant and it's, and it's growing and it's growing fast. Um, 
Walmart is interesting, by the way, that you, that you, you know, that you mentioned this. Um, there's some interesting changes going on there. I mean, they are no longer a minimum wage employer for whatever that's worth. They're not a living wage employer, I would say. Um, but they're doing some things where I think they have at least recognized, partly for PR reasons, but partly just because I think they realize you couldn't only grind your workforce <laughs> into the ground so far without it actually affecting turnover uh, there's just not enough retention. And in turn, your customer service suffers. Um, in turn, you don't run as good a business. And I actually think there's a mindset shift from the old CEO, uh, Lee Scott, to the new CEO, Doug McMillan, that's worth watching. I won't give them a gold star yet, but it's worth watching. We've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to uh, talk about what is to be done. And, of course, the approach of the Democrats has been uh, – mandates. We mandate that employers offer uh, uh, health insurance to their employees. We mandate a minimum wage. Uh, we we uh, mandate participation uh, in Social Security. We're uh, now in the age of Trump. We're in the... We're, we're doing what you call job boning. What's the future of mandates here and what are the alternatives? Yeah. So I think, look, government is a huge piece of the solution. Um, you know, I was somewhat heartened by the plan that the Democrats put out. I, I thought it, you know, pushed at some of the right things. I think that education and training is an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, there's a lot to be done there. There's a lot to be done in terms of wage insurance and uh, job matching for those who are displaced and left behind by automation and technology. But one of the biggest things that we need to do is, if we can, exercise power as consumers, which we can do increasingly, as investors, if we're lucky enough to have a few dollars, to direct it into socially responsible investing funds that not only care about the planet and the environment, which is hugely important, but about how companies treat their workers as well. And there are more and more um, technological um, uh, tools and platforms that allow you to peek behind the curtain at some of these companies and see how they treat their folks down to the front lines. They Companies will respond to consumer pressure. And I think that there are ways to begin to push corporate culture in the right direction. It's hard. There will be a lot of resistance because of this ethos, as you cited, of putting shareholders above workers. And it's often in CEO's self-interest to do that. That's how they're compensated. But I think that there are ways that as investors and as consumers, we can begin to apply pressure. And I think that actually may be, as much as what the government can do, ultimately the real secret to this. Rick Wartzman, his new book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Rick, thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. This is Trump Watch. Next up, Obamacare repeal in the Senate at this hour. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up tonight at 4 on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, 
It's been going on for seven years now. The Republicans are trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. The Senate is still at it at this hour. For today's news, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, last week, we thought Obamacare repeal was dead in the Senate and thus uh, dead uh, probably in our lifetime. But the evil genius Mitch McConnell somehow brought it back to life on Tuesday with a motion to proceed. Please tell us how the Republicans are proceeding at this hour. Uh, in, a, in a rather rocky, bumpy, uh, unclear fashion, which is, uh, a, par for the course, and B, which is w what you would expect when uh, the uh, bill they are voting on is something that is, uh, you know, being changed. Uh, not everyone is, uh, not every one of the senators, not every one of the Republican senators knows all those changes. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of messy. We're, we're down to what, is, what has been called the skinny uh, repeal uh, bill, which uh, in theory isn't supposed to touch Medicaid, which turns out to have a lot of uh, Republican or and, and or uh, Trump supporter uh, uh, beneficiaries, um, and it, uh, it doesn't exactly uh, take an axe to the ACA exchanges. Um, so um, it, it is touted as a sort of minimal bill, uh, maybe a placeholder to get into negotiations with the House, but it's 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 really not so minimal. First of all, it eliminates um, uh, the um, requirement that businesses with more than fifty employees uh, provide their uh, employees with health insurance or or pay the federal government. Uh, it eliminates the uh, individual mandate. Uh, and it may or may not, this is unclear in terms of Senate rules, it may or may not uh, eliminate a tax that was imposed on uh, medical uh, technology uh, to uh, help fund uh, the program. Uh, but it goes beyond that, beyond what's been commonly uh, reported. It, it also eliminates funds for preventive health, uh, and it takes the funding for Planned Parenthood away for a year, and uh, relocates it to community health centers. Uh, and then it also provides somewhat more flexibility for states in their administration of Medicaid. And it's not quite sure. Uh, it's, it, uh, there's not enough information out there right now, right now to know, you know if, if that's simply off or, uh, or actually catastrophic uh, for, uh, uh, for Medicaid. And, and, you know, this is what the Republicans uh, refer to as their sort of minimal Bill, so and, let me ask. And, let me yeah. ask about uh, if we eliminate the individual mandate and we eliminate the employer mandate, what then happens to the insurance market of the United States if only sick people buy insurance? Well, if you owned an insurance company, what would you do? Well, the insurance companies over the last twenty-four hours have said in no uncertain terms this means they're going to have to raise their rates uh, estimates by uh, up to twenty percent or more. Uh, for precisely that reason, it means that they'll be insuring a, a sicker pool of uh, of, of customers, um, and uh, as a result of this, uh, uh, the estimates are that at least 16 million Americans will lose coverage. 
uh, and that rates will, will, will skyrocket. So we have seen in the last 24 hours all the insurance companies plus the AMA, AARP, choose your acronym, uh, uh, all, all coming out against this. Uh, you know, we shall, we shall see where this goes. Uh, but, you know, it, just in the last uh, 90 minutes or so, uh, we've had this sort of fascinating development where Republicans who were considered perhaps a little more moderate, whatever that means, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, and those who were considered certified right-wing nuts, like Ron Johnson of, of, of Wisconsin, uh, have uh, announced that they're wary about voting for the bill uh, because they really only hope by so doing to get in a conference with the House and maybe produce something they think is better, although I think they would probably disagree among the three of them as to what better would be. Uh, Bob Corker, the Republican senator from Tennessee, has also said that uh, he'd vote for it only because he wants it to go to conference. The problem, the immediate problem here, is that it looks like the House Republicans want to schedule a vote uh, tomorrow on Ugh. whatever the Senate passes uh, and, and don't want to go to conference. And, and, and so there are a number of Republicans, those four that I mentioned, probably plus some others, who were only going to vote for the bill because they hoped it would go to conference and now say, well, if it doesn't, we, we probably may not vote for this, but who knows. So as usual, we have, uh, you know, complete uh, Republican confusion. We'll see what results from all this. And this requires working something out between Senate Republicans and House Republicans. It's been hard enough for Senate Republicans to work anything out with their senatorial Republican colleagues, just as it was hard enough for the House to work out anything with their House Republican colleagues. And presumably this has to be done within the next 24 hours. Some kind of understanding has to be reached. Um, we shall see. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are some on the right who think, you know, whatever is in the, the skinny bill in the Senate, if it passes, that's the best they can do. And so the House should just pass it and say, you know, we're done with this. This has been an ordeal for us. It hasn't helped us in the polls. It will not help us in the 2018 elections. Let's be uh, done with it. Um, you know, it, 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 it's it's uh, an interesting approach to legislating. <laughs> if I uh, if it, I it, it, I just it want... ain't in any of the civics textbooks, that's for sure. Yeah, <clears throat> just an hour ago, <clears throat> a little more than an hour ago, uh, Lindsey Graham at that press conference you referred to opened the press conference by calling the current bill being presented to by the Senate leadership. He called it a disaster and a fraud. And John McCain opened his statement, I have nothing to add to that. And all he added was, we've got to have bipartisanship. A disaster and a fraud, uh, I think we agree with him. But what exactly does he mean by calling it a, a disaster and a fraud? Well, the Republicans are torn. Um, uh, you know, you, you have the, the handful of moderates, chiefly uh, uh, Susan Collins uh, and, uh, and Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who, uh, and, and people like Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, who, uh, you know, are concerned that uh, lots and lots of their constituents, including people on whose vote they count, uh, will lose coverage. Uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the Republican right-wing zealots who think it still leaves in place uh, a, a government aid to uh, individuals trying to get health care, which is anathema to them. And, and what, you know, this expectation that the conference between uh, this mishmash of right-wing senators and right-wing uh, Congress members 
is going to produce something better is 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 just ludicrous. Uh, if anything, the House, you know, which passed a much more draconian bill than the already draconian bill that's up for a vote in the Senate, uh, the, the notion that the House will uh, come up with something more palatable to uh, the the Dean Hellers and the and the Lisa Murkowski, uh, the, the, the Lisa Murkowskis and the Susan Collinses is crazy. So I mean, I'm really not quite sure. Uh, what the plausible end game is, and and I think more to the point, none of the Republican legislators are are sure what the plausible end game is. I think they're they're dividing into two camps, which really aren't about the legislation as such. It's the let's get it over now camp, and the uh, you know the hail mary if we keep it going longer maybe we'll come up with something better camp. Uh, that that seems at, at this moment to be the, the the immediate tactical division among Republicans. So we're talking about something like 16 million or 20 million or 23 million people losing their health insurance, which would certainly be a huge thing uh, in America. Uh, I noticed Paul Krugman tweeted earlier this week the attempt by Republicans to use secrets and lies to take away health care from millions has nothing to do with Trump. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, in a, in a sense, that's true. Um, uh, I mean, it has to do with Trump in as much as if there were a Democratic president, uh, this would all be spinning their wheels. None of this would, would, uh, would, would get enacted. So that much it has to do with Trump. He'll sign anything they uh, they managed to get to his desk but the, the, you know this is coming from Paul Ryan who is a uh, a libertarian fanatic uh the the bill he originally produced in the house uh you know was trying to really reduce the role of uh, the government in enabling people to get health coverage uh and it's it's coming from you know one of the most cynical human beings on the face of the earth Mitch McConnell who who simply uh feels that the republicans having uh, bang the drum on this for so long need to pass uh need to pass uh, a, a bill and you know if 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 uh if uh, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or uh any of the other Republican presidential hopefuls from a year and a half ago were president I think we'd still be seeing a lot of the same stuff uh, yeah. uh you know so uh in that sense I think Paul Krugman isn't wrong now, just from a real politique point of view, isn't a Republican repeal of Obamacare the Democrats' best way to retake the House in November 2018? It's certainly a cruel thing for us to be contemplating, but in terms of political reality, isn't this a kind of the Democratic dream? I think the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, one of the things that that makes this so difficult uh, will ma- will make it so difficult for Republicans. They, you know, came of age in a time when uh, you could sort of say, well, Medicaid re- recipients are mainly, are mainly African Americans. Uh, they're people who don't vote for us. Uh, we can stigmatize it uh, and, uh, you know, uh, no, no problem with, with, with cutting back, uh, back health care. But two things have happened. First of all, uh, o- Obamacare, the ACA, expanded eligibility for Medicare to uh, people uh, who weren't uh, just in dire poverty, but, but really strapped and couldn't afford health insurance. Secondly, um, the white working class has been downwardly mobile, and so, you know, they may be the Trump base and the new Republican base, and not so new, they've been some of the Republican base for a long time, 
but uh, they are increasingly uh, the, the 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 Medicaid recipients and the the ACA uh, folks who are uh, the beneficiaries here. So what had been standard Republican ideology and standard Republican uh, practice um, no longer works, uh, and 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 that is going to be a huge problem for the Republicans if they manage to pass any version of this bill. We've only got uh, four or five minutes left here, and I do want to make sure we have a chance to talk about Jeff Sessions, who Trump, of course, has been trying to pressure into quitting so he can appoint a new attorney general who will end the special counsel's Russia investigation. But Jeff Sessions in the last couple of days have, has found support all over the Republican map, especially from the right, Breitbart, Rush Limbaugh, Newt Gingrich, lots of Republican senators all telling Trump, don't fire Jeff Sessions. How do you explain this? Well, um, you know, if, if, if you think about what Trump is trying to do, uh, which, which is to get rid of, uh, of the special, uh, get rid of the special prosecutor, really, you know, this is, this is Trump in his l'état-c'est-moi uh, mode. The, the, this is the Trump who expects a court uh, in a royal sense, uh, not a judicial sense, rather than administration, uh, an administration to be working uh, uh, for him to be heading. So um, it's it, it's not a right wing. He's going up against the most right wing guy in the federal government with what is really a personal agenda. And so the entire American right uh, is is uh, seeing one of their own threatened. Uh, for reasons that really don't have anything fundamentally to do with uh, everything conservatives are concerned about. Uh, hence, they're rallying to Sessions, who, you know, I mean, it just it just in the last couple of days has, has said he's going to bring down more hellfire and brimstone on sanctuary cities and things like that. I mean, the guy's a right-wing, uh, a total right-wing nut. I mean, this is something of a Snopes character out of Faulkner as well, but that's another uh, uh, another point. Uh uh, you know, so uh, he, he can't really be the object of uh, any rem- remotely any sympathy from from anyone but the right. But uh, you know, to oppose uh, essentially turning the government into uh, uh, the court of Louis Quatorze is is I think a, a thing that most people could. Uh, uh, agree uh, agree upon. Of course, they are letting Trump know that. They are willing to let the Russian investigations proceed. And Trump, with all his talk about pardoning himself, seems to suggest that what the investigations are going to uncover is so damaging, so destructive to his existence as president that he's willing to contemplate and to defend uh, pardoning himself. Uh, I think all the Republicans who are telling him don't fire Jeff Sessions are also aware of that, and apparently they're willing to uh, to tolerate the consequences. Yeah, well, I think a lot of them would certainly prefer Mike Pence as yeah. president. I don't, I don't doubt that for uh, for a second. So um, you know, uh, and and you know, it's not like his popularity is such that uh, whatever fear they may have had about going against Trump in January is is. Uh, is still with them at least in that uh, that degree in July. Uh, it it you know clearly the polls suggest that uh, there's breathing room to go against this guy for if, if you're a right wing Republican. One last thing in the minute we have left here. There's only 17 percent support for repealing uh, Obamacare, but there's been a lot of support for that big infrastructure plan that Trump campaigned on. Trump talked about a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. It's something the Democrats might also be able to support. What's happening with the trillion-dollar infrastructure plan? Not much. 
there, there seems to be a White House task force that's supposedly looking into it, but no legislation has been introduced by the Trump administration. And even what they were uh, proposing was was really uh, just enlisting the private sector, and and the feds would would pony up maybe two hundred billion over a decade, which is 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 clearly not enough. And it's also not clear, you know, that the private sector can figure out a way to make money by rebuilding the Flint water system or the New York subway or or you name it, um, if there was money to be made and, and a lot of infrastructure, uh, the private sector would be there. Uh, it, one of the reasons we have a public sector, we have a government, is precisely to take up that slack. <laughs> Excellent. We, we don't really see the Republicans doing this. Excellent point. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Always great to be here. That's it for today. I want to thank my other guest, Amy Willens, talked about the Trump kids and their problems. Uh, Rick Wartzman talked about the rise and fall of good jobs in America. His new book is The End of Loyalty. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter. As always, for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly with James Cromwell in studio. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.